Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Joining me today on the show for a year in review, as well as a bit of an outlook at the year ahead, is Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC Greens. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Tell me what you think the BC Greens' most significant achievements were in 2018. Well, because personally, I know that each of us, Adam, Sonia, and I, each have our own individual achievements that we would highlight. From my perspective, it's the announcement on December 5th of Clean BC, which is an economic vision moving forward for British Columbia grounded in uh, our strategic strength. That is our ability to attract and retain the best and brightest uh, because of the quality of life we can offer, our access to boundless renewable energy and and, 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 and forest wood and, and, and water, as well as our, our, our top-notch education system and we can offer employers uh, highly skilled workers. So that, to me, was a culminating, uh, uh, for for someone like me, I mean, I spent 25 years as a climate scientist, came into the legislature because I could not watch the dismantling of Mr. Campbell's leadership in this area because he understood the economic ramifications of early action. And so we've seen now that coming to fruition in Clean BC. Without a doubt, that's my highlight. But my colleague, Sonia Firstenau, would argue, uh, without a doubt, that the uh, revision to the environmental assessment process, as well as the professional Alliance um, overhaul uh, is is uh, one of the reasons why she got in. So we've seen some, you know, climate is now in the environmental assessment problem mm-hmm. process. We now see better stringent regulatory and rules in place for professional reliance uh, approval process. And, and uh, my colleague Adam Olson would argue that the uh, work he's done on the Wild Salmon, Salmon Secretariat is... Uh, uh, his uh, defining moment. But we, we've had many, many things. We've had lobbying reform. That was BC Green's election platform uh, policy. Uh, we were the only ones who campaigned on that. We've had extensive lobbying reforms passed through law now, both last year, as well as more importantly, the update that we did in this session. There's others too, but those are some of the highlights. Of course, it has been a very busy year, and it's been about a year and a half now since government was formed. How would yes. you describe your relationship at this point in time with the BCNDP and Premier John Horgan? That's, a, that's another great question. We, you know, when we, when we started a year and a half ago, uh, or last summer, I guess, I, I, would, I would suggest that there was, there was some, some tension, but tension because of essentially we were all new. The BCNDP had been in opposition for 16 years. They, they really had not got the experience in governing. I, I would argue that they, uh, they didn't know what governing was relative to opposition, and they governed as if they had a majority. On the other hand, I had not had a caucus before, and I had a caucus now, so we had to work differently. But also, um, my caucus had no experience. So, so we had, you know, there were teething pains. I would say those teething pains came to a head probably around January of, or February last year when Mr. Horgan started uh, announcing he was going to stump for LNG. Uh, so we had some hard, you know, some, some hard negotiations, some hard conversations about, you know, moving forward. And I'll say since about February, culminating in, you would have witnessed it in this last term, our relationship has become outstanding, is that we, we work collaboratively. We, focus, we, we, agree, we agree to focus on the issues that we can agree on, uh, you know, and, and if the NDP wants to do some stuff that we don't agree on, they can go work with the, find the liberal support. But, you know, on a personal level with John Horgan, I can say that I, I find, <clears throat> consider him a friend. I think he's an outstanding premier. I think he understands 
um, what people want. I think he's he's motivated for the right reasons, and I and I say that you know I didn't know that until I got to know him, and I, I'm quite I'm very pleased actually with our relationship, and I think it's going forward. It's in a good place. We don't agree on everything. There's some things we're continuing to push, like ride hailing. This is we feel like we're banging our head against the wall on this one. Um, <laughs> But we're going to get there. And uh, we've still got some hard work to go, though. Will we get there in 2019? Well, that would be our goal. I mean, again, on the ride-hailing file, uh, when I was in the ledge by myself, I introduced private members' bills a couple of times, and then I did again last year. We got out of all that a legislative committee that advised government on a legislative framework, which was announced. We looked at that. We went, hang on here. Uh, this legislative framework is probably not going to allow ride-hailing to come, and we got some important changes done in that. That was my colleague, Adam Olson, who was now taking over that file, uh, such that we know that Uber and Lyft the two big companies are are able to walk to the next step. So the you know there's it's as if there's two sets of doors. The first door is a big door. We had to ensure that they could actually get through that door. They are through that door. Now we have to figure out the the more detailed regulatory environment, things like class five versus class four. But you would have seen in the last legislative session a, a rather remarkable move from the minister to to start to to soften some of her stands in this area. And we have a legislative committee that is going to advise on regulations. And that's going to sit in January. And, and we're quite excited by that because we think we're we're going to get it this year. And, you know, we're not going to give up. If we were government, we're not. We are opposition with three members doing everything we can. It would have happened, but it uh, would have happened like four years ago when I, if, when I was in the list. But we're doing what, what we can now. And we think we're close. Um, we're very close. So yes, we're going to get it this year. Uh, if you no know, when I say this year, 2019, mm-hmm. I'm it, it just has to happen. And, I, and I, I think the companies are a little more, you know, if you've been listening to the radio advertisements in around Vancouver, you're starting to see that Uber is advertising. And, and I see that Lyft partnered with the Vancouver Canucks and now has a logo at Centerite. So clearly, um, these, these larger, the this, this smaller ones too, the larger companies are beginning to see a door open in, in for, for British Columbia. Yes, they're here. They're just not quite yet on the roads. <laughs> yes, yes, but they're here now. And so, I mean, I don't think if the door hadn't, if that first door hadn't opened, I don't think we would have seen the kind of investments we're beginning to see by these companies. Fair enough. I want to talk a little bit more about Clean BC. As you said, it's a culmination of many years, a career really in climate yeah. science for you. Is it possible to achieve the targets set out in this plan while also developing an LNG industry here in BC? So what we've highlighted in the Clean BC plan is a pathway to reduce 75% of our emissions that uh, that are legislated to be reduced by 2030. There's still six megatons to be found. That's six million tons. That's a lot of tons. Uh, Four of those come from LNG Canada, if that were to be built. Now, I, I still, you know, the global market situation for natural gas is highly volatile. And, and whether or not LNG actually ends up building a facility in, in Kitimat, we'll see. But right now, there's, I, I think we can get to the 40% reductions. Uh, it's still going to take a lot of work. Uh, the problem arises uh, if we start to... Uh, we cannot make the 2040 and 2050 targets. Some you know, international trading mechanism that has yet to be discovered, which I, I doubt there will be. Uh, the reality is, uh, I mean, let's look at the second quarter uh, revenues that the province of British Columbia got from 
uh, natural gas. Well, we actually lost $24 million in royalties. It is a complete myth to think that somehow we are going to be you know, all wealthy and prosperous because of uh, the fact we've literally given away this resource to other uh, to multinationals through the, through the upstream uh, royalty regime. You know, this was done by the BC Liberals and the BC NDP took it to another level. Back in 2014, the BC Liberals said, look, we're desperate to get LNG, so we're going to give away the resource, but we'll LNG income tax so that up front, you'll get the resource essentially for free, but you'll start paying, paying money to beat the province when you start earning money. Well, the BC NDP kept this royalty regime in place. You know, we're, we're way down. Literally, we lost $24 million in that last year. And they've also said they're not going to implement the LNG income tax regime. So, but at the same time, you know, this, this is how outrageous this, this whole uh, process is. The, the, the BC NDP, uh, the BC Liberals said that, you know, they would allow the industrial rate for electricity, about 5.4 cents a kilowatt hour, if the company, that would be LNG Canada, used electricity in the compression of natural gas, the BCNDP relaxed that requirement, which is outrageous. And But, but because of the fact, I, I just don't think they thought this through, because of the fact that we're essentially giving away the natural gas, we're essentially saying to LNG Canada, you have the natural gas upstream, you can burn it to compress natural gas. And because you're basically getting free natural gas to burn it, to compress it, because we're not collecting any royalties of substance up front, and we're not requiring you to use electricity to compress, so you're going to have free electricity, uh, free natural gas. And on top of that, for the rest of their operations, we require to build Site C to deliver into that, and it's going to cost the rate payer between 10 and 15 cents a kilowatt hour to, to offer LNG Canada electricity at 5.4 cents a kilowatt hour, and they're not going to have to pay PSD, and they're exempt from the steel tariffs, and they're exempt from carbon tax increases. This is outrageous. I mean, the average person in, in, in British Columbia should look around and say, what are we doing in light of the fact that the province lost $24 million last year in natural gas royalties? Sure, there's some activity in Kitimat through speculation and construction, but the reality is you, we, we need to build a real resilient 21st century economy grounded in our strategic strengths. And that is what Clean BC does. And that's why I'm excited about it. Now, we've had you on the show before and you said that LNG development for you is a matter of principle. Some things are non-negotiable. And that at the time you said you would push for a vote of non-confidence should the premier continue to promote LNG in Asia. This was in January. He had a trade mission there and he met with some of the venture partners in LNG Canada. Here we are. We now have a final investment decision that was positive from that company has your position changed so no so if you look again what i what i what when i announced out i, I don't know that i use the word push for a vote of non-confidence. What I did say is that uh, something along the lines is this government is not going to last very long if they continue to move down this path. So we, this was, as I outlined earlier in our discussion, uh, a very low moment in our relationship with the BCNDP. Yeah. We since had many, 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 many meetings. And one of the things that we were, because in our confidence and supply agreement, you'll note that there is, in fact, uh, a, phrase says that we'll, uh, a phrase that says we will put in place a plan to reach our legislated target. Uh, so I, at this point, I know that the only plan being discussed was LNG, and I'm thinking like, hang on there, you know, look what's in CASA. You're talking stumping LNG. Okay, LNG is not mentioned in CASA, but this plan is. 
So we were able to push the NDP to introduce legislation in the spring to legislate the new targets uh, as a signal to the direction. And we worked very hard to ensure that the Clean BC plan uh, would actually get us to at least the 2030 target. Uh, we've had a change in the environmental assessment process to ensure that greenhouse gas emissions are considered as part of the environmental assessment process. And we've got to a position now where I feel that the, 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 the wins that we've had in terms of getting the, the province to, to, to think about greenhouse gases, both in terms of overall reductions as well as in terms of any future environmental assessment, has been quite a profound change that has led us to be able to continue to work collaboratively with this government going forward in light of the fact that anything added, any LNG added, will have to be seen through the lens of an environmental assessment process that mm -hmm. actually has greenhouse gas emissions in it. So, so we've been able to clamp down any any uh, ability to think that somehow we're going to have a bird, uh, you know, a massive LNG expansion. That's that's not going to happen based on this environmental assessment legislation. You mentioned a couple of moments ago your desire to focus on building the economy of tomorrow. Yeah. Innovation was very much a part of the BC Greens 2017 yeah. campaign platform. There was so much to do this year, so many issues yes. to tackle. But when it's all said and done, how much do you think BC has done to cultivate this 21st century economy of tomorrow? I'm really excited about what's happened over the past year uh, in this area. I mean, one of the key things, government, of course, cannot pick winners and losers. And government doesn't choose which is the best company, the worst company, et cetera. Well, you know, we've seemed to see a lot of that in LNG. But, but what government has a responsibility to do is to signal the market and set in place an, an environment that actually allows for innovation to flourish. And we're starting to see the result. First, you would have you would know the, about the digital supercluster, which is mm -hmm. a major investment that the province is actually at the table with. Again, we work very closely with the government to ensure that government recognized the, the opportunity that, afford, that BC was afforded through the digital uh, uh, um, uh, supercluster that was uh, announced. We've also had uh, the Innovate BC and Innovation Commission and Emerging Economy Task Force established and beginning to, to move forward. We now we know that Mr. Winter is working very hard to, with government to ensure that British Columbia puts in place mechanisms that allow for timely access to federal funds through matching programs. We also know that if you look at the second quarter fiscal results, this is exactly what we were hoping to see. The the um, And this is, you know, bearing fruits early is that, that we saw di diminishing of returns and revenue to the province from property transfer tax, which is a good thing because way too much of of our provincial coffers were being filled with property transfer tax from an out-of-control real estate market, what we saw is a, is a reduction there, but an increase in both corporate and personal income taxes. And that was a direct consequence of the economy diversifying and business flourishing in a basically 100% uh, full labor uh, mode. So the, our economy is thriving here. It's diversifying. It's quite exciting. And I think Clean BC is going to position us very well moving forward into the you know, for the years ahead. Taxation, of course, has been an issue municipally, provincially, and federally for businesses in the Greater yep. Vancouver region. Would you say BC remains today a competitive place to invest? 
Absolutely. BC continues to remain a competitive place. The, the corporate tax uh, rate was influenced not for small business, but for you know the above the 500,000 to, to, to 13%, which basically brought it up with the rest of, uh, you still on the lower end of the rest of Canada. Small business uh, tax rate in BC is second to none. With the MSP premium, which was which was eliminated for individuals and moved to employer health tax, uh, this this we wouldn't have done it the way the BC NDP did it. We would have done it through a, con- a combination, uh, well, followed more of the Ontario model, where there would be a progressive personal amount too. With that said, um, the, the 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 payroll tax, which was in place, is, not, is is still on the low end nationally. So it's so competitive nationally. We are absolutely there. But what we have nationally, that 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 still puts us way in the lead in terms of competitiveness. And we can never underestimate is the quality of life that we can offer people in British Columbia. You know, people want to live here because we can offer them skiing. We can offer them sailing. We can offer them vibrant cultural activities. We can offer them surrounding water and mountains that are absolutely beautiful. You know, and we can offer them a climate that in the winter is pretty nice relative to the rest of Canada. <laughs> and in the summer is also pretty nice compared to the rest of Canada. You know, if you're in Metro Vancouver, Vancouver Island, you know, the Okanagan, your summers and winters are are, 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 are pale in comparison of what you might see. So if you're in Winnipeg, for example, like the mosquito season in Winnipeg in the summer, you know, you've you basically need to wear beehive protectors at some times. We don't have that, uh, or we or we have a much reduced amount. Sure, we can have black flies in the back country, but we don't have the same scale. And in the, you know, we don't get the the long minus thirty degrees time. We get occasional outbursts, but but it just we can offer a, a, a place to that employers know that if they come here, they can attract and retain the best and brightest in the world. Government, of course, as you know, has brought online a number of supply side measures to address housing affordability, as well as taxation measures and policies on the demand side. For small businesses, though, in a region like Greater Vancouver, Vancouver specifically, that have struggled, a lot of what they're looking to would be to municipal authorities to maybe change rules around zoning or taxes. But at the provincial level, do you see any opportunities to maybe bring more affordability relief to small businesses? Yeah, I'm really uh, excited about um, some of the uh, things we've been working on on the uh, supply side as well as demand side with uh, bringing ideas to government. Uh, one of the things that we've been pushing, and I believe the rental task force is imminently going to announce uh, uh, something in this regard, we've been pushing government to take a good hard look at uh, along the lines of what Ontario does at the no rental clause that exists with stratas. Right now, we know that there are stratas in British Columbia that have no rental clauses. Uh, you know, in Ontario, you, stratas are not allowed to have no rental clauses, unless, of course, they can have no short-term rental clauses. But, you know, they can, they can, they're able to regulate the individual strata, the ability for stratas to have Airbnbs, for example. But, the, but if you own a property and you're having one-year or longer contracts, in Ontario, you can't have a no rental clause. Well, there, that is preventing a lot of stock in British Columbia from actually being rented out, we think, by the removal of the no rental clause, but but also at the same time empowering strata the power of eviction. Because, you know, if you have absentee landlords, you'd have to have strata uh, uh, the power of eviction. We think that that would open a ton of supply up in a very short term that would actually benefit. It would be win, win, win because it would increase value of the, of the properties for those who own them. It would increase supply, which would lower rental, uh, lower, uh, sorry, increase vacancy rates, increase the stock there. And, 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 and frankly, I think that's the single most important piece of public policy that can be introduced to deal with the rental issue right now. On top of that, 
you know, we worked very hard uh, to ensure that the speculation tax, that what's actually now called a speculation and vacancy tax, which was a demand side measure, was highly precision focused on exactly what um, the government was intending to do. And so it's largely focused now on offshore money, particularly those so-called satellite families, families that may earn all their revenue in another jurisdiction, but live in multi-million dollar homes here, uh, which may be vacant for three, you know, half the year. We also have uh, the vacancy issues is is is, is focused ex- exclusively on urban areas. However, I think you touch upon a really important point, and that point is respect to the role of local governments in terms of this issue. Number one, for example, <clears throat> I live in the riding of Oak Bay Gordon Head, and in, in Oak Bay, uh, it's not a, you're not allowed to have secondary suites. Uh, so <clears throat> the, the official vacancy rate is uh, would not include any secondary suites. You know the questions uh, as we start to address affordability, councils, local governments are going to have to grapple more and more with these issues about zoning, about about their communities, about densification. And the government does have a role to play there in terms of providing incentives to local governments that wish to actually um, focus on densification and, and, and uh, you know, zoning. So we'll see how that moves forward. But but so far, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with the with what has happened, the the market has responded as was hoped. <clears throat> Rather than what you don't want is a market collapse. What you do want is a temperance of the market to allow wages to slowly catch up. And with a three percent uh, zero to three uh, percent reduction in value of homes, I think that's exactly what we needed. Uh, and maintaining kind of a steady state housing market is exactly what we need for a few years. Looking ahead at the new year, either in reference to your confidence in supply agreement or any policies you have as a party, are there areas that have yet to really be addressed that you're hoping will be addressed by government in 2019? Well, this is one of the things we have to we have to get together with the BCNDP. If you look at our confidence and supply agreement, you'll see that um, much of what we we agree, said we were going to do, we've done. Whether it be banning big money or setting in place the the, mo- <coughs> the clean BC uh, uh, plan, or whether it be you know the basic income pilot project, a lot of these have either been started or completed. You know, lobbying registration. So what we need to do is we need to, uh, and we'll probably do this in, early in the new year, is is sit down with the BCNDP and hash out uh, some shared priorities moving forward. So, you know, one of them from our perspective, I know, will be the BC Hydro Review. Uh, It's critical for us that the review process be such that it position itself uh, in parallel with the Clean BC program. And so that will be something we'll be spending a lot of time on. Uh, We need to ensure some of these programs we've started move forward. But again, um, we'll we'll see as we move up the poverty reduction plan. It's it's really, you know, went from a plan to develop a plan to come up with a plan. We now got the the first plans done. We have now a plan to develop a plan. And and, uh, we got to get that plan plan out there. And that's coming in the spring. So there'll be some hard work on that. So and, and with that, we'll we'll sit down and, and probably in January with the PCNDP and, uh, you know, talk about some priorities as well. Finally, what would you say your most anticipated challenges will be in the new year? Most anticipated challenges? Well, number one, um, going immediately in the new year is the Nanaimo by-election. So we have mm-hmm. on December the 15th, a, uh, a nomination. Um, 
a race in Nanaimo. There will be a by-election uh, if, you, if you know we follow what the premier has signaled out publicly. He would like to see in place, as he did when Christy Clark's by-election was there, a new MLA before the budget. Uh, that would mean campaigning in January. So I'm going to be working really hard to, for the BC Greens to uh, get representation in Nanaimo. You know, we never know what happens. It's up to the voters of Nanaimo, but I think we have an incredible opportunity there. Uh, so that's my immediate challenge. After that, it'll be the BC Hydro review that we've got to follow through very carefully, <coughs> and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a t and just doing our job. It's it's I gotta be honest with you. It's tough. There are but three of us in the legislature. Three of us, and we we believe our role is not to hurl abuse and play gotcha politics. Our role is to focus on public policy, which we do. We try to ensure we actually get outcomes that are good public policy. Uh, we're not interested in the political games. It's a, it's a ton of work. One of the three of us has to sit on every committee that exists in the legislature. We have to be briefed up on every single bill, and it's a lot harder to do that with three than if you have 41. Which leads me to the to the question: Is you know. It would be really helpful if, if, if uh, you know, the BC Liberals would actually uh, get up and start working towards good public policy as well, because we could do a lot if they focused on that instead of political games. But we're, we're still, they're still struggling with discovering who they are and what they stand for. And so continue to play political games in the legislature that do not put public policy and do not put people first. And I hope that that changes in, in, in 2019 so we can actually, you know, we have an opportunity with opposition in the Liberals and us to actually move policy forward because we have, the numbers are there, but it has to be done in a manner that's respectful to public policy and respectful to process and is collaborative instead of gotcha. That would be, if I were to, you know, have a Christmas, a New Year's Christmas wish, it would be that the BC Liberals grow up and start acting in the legislature like legislators trying to advance good public policy. And then we'll work with them and we'd love to work with them on that. Thank you very much for coming on the show to talk about the last year and your, your hopes for the year ahead. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest today has been Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC Greens. And that's it for our show. Thank you for listening to BIV today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can share our show on social media. We love it when you do. And listen, of course, to episodes and read more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>